Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another Momenta Edge podcast. Uh, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta, and today we're really thrilled to have with us Guido Jure, who is the Chief Digital Officer of ABB. Uh, ABB is a uh, one of the most innovative companies in the industrial market in robotics. They're doing a lot of investments in artificial intelligence, and Guido is one of the, uh, the key people involved with driving the company's vision forward to the future. And in this podcast, we'll, we'll look to cover a number of topics. And, and Guido, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ed. I'm glad to be here. Terrific. So I'd uh, love to get a bit of perspective on, on your background. Could you talk a bit about what, you know, what has, has shaped your views of, of technology and, and what we call connected industry, and, and what had led you to your, to your current role at ABB? Sure. So my background, uh, computer science and electrical engineering, but I started my early career actually in the IT space. I went to work for a small company in the town called Cisco Systems, huh. and uh, that grew by leaps and bounds. And the IT role of Cisco was all about uh, converged networking, the rollout of IT, the internet, Wi-Fi. Then that became e-commerce, B2B. And then I changed a number of uh, times in terms of what I did there, in terms of going from internal IT to consulting with customers, and then finally heading up a business unit in the Internet of Things space. So the last job I had there was in uh, heading up that, that BU. And then I went to work for a renewable energy company uh, in the wind space. Then I went to work in a consumer IoT space working for Nokia, which was looking to get back into IoT in some way after selling off its phone business. So I got them into the digital health space. And then now for the past two years at ADD, where I've been in charge in terms of leading the digital transformation for the company. So. I guess a key sort of theme that have emerged or why I keep sort of going from one place to the other in, in terms of technology is that I think the ultimate impact of the combination of smart software, sensors, communication, the Internet of Things in general is really just playing out. And I think in some sense it's just starting to happen in the industrial space, and that's what attracted me to this uh, opportunity at ABB where I feel like the technology revolution has come to, say, financial services or media uh, or the IT companies in general, but when we talk about electrical utilities or manufacturing or transportation, that has yet to begin. And I think we're witnessing the beginning of what some people would call Industry 4.0 or the clean energy revolution. But regardless, wherever we look across all of our customer industries, we're seeing tremendous appetite for digital transformation. Yeah, how would you characterize uh, the, the the state of the industrial market? I mean, you've got clearly some uh, some 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 of the best connected industry DNA uh, coming out of Cisco, which is was certainly was one of the early visionaries in in, in terms of mm -hmm. the uh, really the. the uh, Evangelizing the idea that that we we can connect the physical world, but you know, as as you look at the the market around you know the traditional industrial uh, sectors that are you know, coming online, I mean, how, how how would you characterize the state of the market, and and how how have you seen the evolution over the past several years? Well, the way I see it is that the pendulum of innovation has swung. So, if you wanted to work in the latest and greatest technology in the late 80s, early 90s, you went to work for maybe defense or NASA or some part of the military. But in, in the case of what happened afterwards, that the pendulum of technology innovation swung to the enterprise and desktop PCs came and local area networks and the internet. And then if you wanted to work in the latest and greatest technology after 2000, you went to the consumer space and you saw the rise of mobile telephony, broadband, internet in the home, home automation, all the rest. But the industrial sector, in some sense, has not yet really been transformed by digital technology. And I think part of the reason for that delay and why that's happening now is that a number of the technologies developed thus far 
didn't really address the need of what industrial customers needed. And for example, if you look at connectivity for consumers, we always want you know faster connections so we can watch video on our cell phones. But the industrial space doesn't actually need fast connectivity. It needs long-range connectivity at low power so that these things, sensors and other devices can be battery operated and deployed in the field and remote areas, for example. So the shift is a little bit different, but certainly right now, innovations such as narrowband LTE, cloud computing, analytics, AI technologies, drone technologies, VR technologies, they're tailor-made for the kind of problems that our customers in the industrial space are trying to solve. And I think that is why we're witnessing a shift in the pendulum of innovation where we can use a lot of these consumer-led innovations but adapt them to the needs of our industrial customer base. Uh, what in the in the uh, historically, I mean, industrial technologies have been uh, you know, essentially built for resilience and uh, and siloed. Can you can you talk about some of the challenges that are involved in uh, it really in, in combining operational technology with you know information technology cultures and and uh, yeah. and innovation methodologies. Sure. So let's let's first start with the technology perspective, and then we'll move on to the cultural and, and people element. But from the technology element, what I think is exciting is certain technologies are now coming to the fore that essentially are tailor-made or can be applied. On the other hand, as you point out, there is a bit of an impedance mismatch in terms of reliability, quality, resiliency, risk. For example, it's very clear that in the oil and gas sectors, we don't want any kind of equipment that will generate sparks for obvious reasons. Um, but similarly, the other challenge we see is that a lot of the industrial equipment is designed for very long cycle times. So take an example of an electricity transformer. You've got a piece of hardware that could last 40, 50, or 60 years. And it's easy to sort of rush into that and say, like, oh, we're just going to put a sensor on it, and that way we can monitor this thing. And we have essentially the equivalent of a Raspberry Pi connected back over, over a broadband connection to, to be able to monitor it. Well, the challenge with that is that the weakest link in that system is actually the IT component. Because in the lifetime of that transformer, you're probably going to have to replace that digital sensor several times because it's out in the hot sun, it freezes in the winter time, it's getting exposed to the elements. Um, that's a heavy wear and tear on a piece of IT equipment, which typically is not designed to last for decades. As I say, cybersecurity or resiliency. One of the things that in the IT space that IT has gotten very good at is sort of the regular patching and updating of desktops and servers and all the rest. And quite often people point out that in the OT space, there's a bit of a philosophy of if it isn't broken, don't fix it, just let it rust in place and run it until it breaks. Well, the challenge is that this mentality of constantly patching and updating or isolating infected machines, which has been drilled into the IT people on the IT side, you can't apply that in the factory environment because in the factory, job one is keep things going. And even if this particular machine might be compromised or infected, if it's doing its job and running the plant, that's the most important thing. Let's fix it later. Let's address it when we have some plant maintenance or downtime. So there's a there's a different sense of priorities. It's almost like the, um, the code of ethics in, in healthcare, first do no harm. That's sort of the same thing in the OT space, right? First, right. you know, um, because you're running a mission-critical process where all the workers don't go home at 5 p.m. You don't have the weekend to do certain things. So there's, a, there's an operational mindset or, or availability mindset, which is extremely uh, tough in terms of its discipline. When it comes to the cultures, I think there are a couple of things that the IT world has, I think, successfully uh, put into its operation, such as, for example, planning for obsolescence. So we know in the IT space that PCs don't last forever, servers don't last forever, phones don't last forever, and IT management has built into their budget and their planning cycles a regular technology refresh. We don't yet have that in the OT space. In the OT space, a lot of the computers that are running the factories and the plants are essentially run into the ground. So they're essentially, in some cases, very old, and they're left to run very old and no longer secure operating systems which then essentially exposes them even more to the risks of cyber threats. And that is something we have to get better at. 
Yeah, at, at uh, ABB, uh, I mean, you've you've been developing a platform uh, ability. I mean, could you talk about how um, you know the, the 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 work that you're doing? How how at least working with a platform helps to uh, help, helps to bridge some of those challenges that that you've outlined between the uh, between the, the traditional operational technologies and and, and IT. And just sure, the, because if you, if you look at the, the OT space, we're interested in all of these latest and greatest technologies that are also very exciting for IT people, such as um, virtualization technologies and machine learning and all of these latest innovations that are coming fast and furious out of a number of IT companies. So how do we make our solutions able to leverage these innovations? Because in some sense, what's, what's doubly challenging in the industrial IoT space is you have to, first of all, be a, an expert in the domain of your customer. You have to understand the needs of oil and gas and manufacturing and refining and all of those different spaces. But on top of that, you now also have to be a master in all these IT technologies. So you have to understand what is Kubernetes, what is Hadoop, what are these new innovations that have come into the market in such a short period of time. Because as you're building new systems or solutions, which is a combination of hardware, software, connectivity, that requires you to master both. You need to have that domain expertise and also this very advanced IT expertise. So the way we're trying to make it easier for our businesses within ADB to develop new solutions, new robots, new software applications, new connected machinery, is by packaging up these IT innovations and what we call our ability platform. The platform is not only in the cloud, but it's certainly the cloud is a big part of it. It also consists of technologies at an edge or gateway level and at a device level. And this prepackaged software, which is based in large part on Microsoft Azure, but not only Microsoft, we're adding technologies from other companies as well, allows our business units to essentially consider all of these technologies like Lego building blocks. If I'm building a smart robot and I want the robot to have the best cyber technology, but also the best cloud and cloud analytics software, using a common set of software technologies allows me to build my solution more quickly. So we're using, technically, we're essentially ascribing to Microsoft Azure platform as a service. That's a very important distinction because a lot of companies will say, yes, we're also using a cloud provider, but whether you use them as infrastructure as a service, i.e. someone else's data center, or when you're building on top of the software libraries that those companies are increasingly developing is a big difference. And we're definitely all in on paths. We're basically saying Microsoft has thousands of people developing machine learning libraries, visualization tools, database technologies. Let's not compete with that. Let's build on top of that. And in our world, that's a big change because if you go back just a few years, you would see a lot of industrial companies actually building platforms from scratch. We think that's a waste of time. We think that that not only ends up squandering your resources because you're going to have to develop all of those same tools and libraries and software sets that essentially Microsoft, Amazon, Google, many others are starting to build. But it also essentially means you're not taking full advantage of those innovations to build your solutions more quickly because the value add is not what you do on top, i.e., how do I take advantage of a rich cloud offering to build connected services for my connected drives or connected robots or connected motors. And that is where we want to accelerate. So that's why we we tell our customers very clearly, we don't sell a platform, we sell solutions. Solutions solve your problems, the platform is how we build the solutions. Yeah, I said, thought the uh, the partnership with Microsoft is a really, I mean, it's a it's a really significant move. And I, you you had alluded to how this, you know, the market around uh, industrial IoT platforms has has evolved. I mean, how how has that uh, that partnership changed the way that uh, that ABB had been focusing its its development efforts and its solution efforts? Um, I mean, it, 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 it as as you alluded, I mean, it sounds like you're um, you get much more closely aligned with you're able to to focus much more on the business than, uh, you know, re, kind of re uh, reinventing all the plumbing. Correct. I think the, the way that I characterize our, our partnership with Microsoft is that it really is a partnership. It's not a vendor relationship. I.e., we're not only just consuming their software tools. We have essentially several dimensions to our partnerships. For example, one of them is clearly on R and D. So as Microsoft is evolving Azure. 
to cater not only to traditional IT companies that want to use the cloud, but also OT companies like us, they are very keen to get feedback onto, okay, how do we, what kind of services do you need to be able to administer to your intelligent uh, edge devices, to your intelligent systems that you're, that you're building and deploying into these factories and plants. And typically that will require a whole new set of capabilities that they haven't had to deal with before. For example, uh, real-time streaming databases. In the world of IT, relational databases are the norm, but in the industrial world, you need databases that can ingest sensor data, and they do so at really high speed, and they do so continuously, they never stop. Whereas in the world of relational, you have sort of snapshots, you ingest some data, then you want some reports, sort of that more batch-oriented mode doesn't work if you're screening data from sensors or smart devices. So that's an example of where we're driving innovation for Microsoft by giving specific feedback. The other area that we work together is in initiatives around common marketing objectives. So we go and meet customers jointly to essentially explain how the combination of ABD and Microsoft technologies can accelerate customer uh, progress in terms of greater efficiency, reliability, cost savings, and the rest. And then lastly, which is a particularly interesting dimension as well, Microsoft has a very interesting program called the Concel Initiative, whereby Azure-based solutions developed by companies like us can, in fact, be promoted by Microsoft salespeople. And when we successfully sell one of them through that effort, the Microsoft salespeople actually get credit for that sale, even though it's a sale done by ADB. It's a bit like getting a referral fee, and they get that referral fee for their salespeople. So for us, we like this because this essentially adds a couple of thousand salespeople that are hitting the streets every day talking to many of our same customers, evangelizing those solutions we've built on top of Azure. So it's a multifaceted relationship that's not only on the R&D side, but also in terms of joint customer engagement, and then finally, assistance with selling the solutions. Yeah, that's, I mean, it sounds like a real, really a win-win. And, uh, you know, certainly when you're dealing with, with technologies that are evolving so quickly, I think it, it does help to have uh, it, as, as many smart feet on the street as, as possible. Um, I had a, a question really about the uh, the perception of, of technologies and um, really the, uh, whether there are disconnects in terms of the way that, uh, you know, selling to operational technology customers or clients uh, is different from uh, you, selling traditionally to, to IT departments or, um, you know, is, are, are there any notable uh, disconnects in, in the expectations that industrial uh, clients have and, and, you know, the, the actual, the awareness of how to, how to apply the technologies appropriately? Yeah, so the first part is that sometimes there's specific regulatory requirements. If you're selling into a utility customer and you're selling some kind of technology that's going to be deployed out in their transmission and distribution networks, they may start asking you questions about something called NERC SIP compliance, and so that's specific to that industry. Uh, if you're selling into oil and gas, it's about this uh, compliance with Sparks, for example. If you're selling into any other industry, there's usually some regulatory framework that you have to be aware of and typically compliant with. I think the other key difference is the sensitivity to data. So I think IT side, the carpeted office, we've been much more comfortable putting data in the cloud for longer. Witness hosted email, hosted CRM, hosted ERP. So most of the back office systems on the carpeted office side are increasingly in the cloud. I would say that in the industrial space, this question around what do I put in the cloud and what kind of systems will I be allowed to put in the cloud is still a debate that's ongoing. And I think partly it's been confused by the fact that there's two kinds of systems that exist within an industrial environment. There's these control systems. So, for example, SCADA systems, programmable logic controllers, things that essentially respond to real-time sensory input and make something happen, like they open a valve or they turn on a motor. There's been a mistaken assumption that those systems will go to the cloud. And just the laws of physics, uh, delay, health and safety, risk, just indicate that it's probably unlikely. Those things will always remain on-premise. But there's an increasing second class of applications, what we call the asset loop monitoring, where you're not doing real-time control, but you're monitoring assets for performance or reliability. And there's a sampling of that asset. If you're looking after a motor or something that moves, 
you'll get some early warning that something isn't right within hours, days, sometimes weeks, because you start to see more vibration or noise or the temperature goes up. So you don't need this real-time component. So that second leap or the second class of applications, which is typically doing things like predictive maintenance or process optimization, can go to the cloud. And I personally believe will go to the cloud. But a lot of the industrial customers are concerned that we're sort of exposing the equivalent of the Coke formula, which is, mm. well, hang on, the way we make things is key to our IP. In the IT world, we've had this useful construct popularized by people like Jeffrey Moore back in the day of core versus context, i.e. what is truly differentiated versus what is more like hygiene, things you have to do. That, that assessment of, of determining which of your data is really truly sensitive and cannot go to the cloud or should not go to the cloud is um, yet to happen within the industrial space. And I think there's also similarly a little bit of a belief that on-premise systems, in-house systems are somehow more reliable and secure. And I suspect that may actually not be borne out by the data, which is that typically these cloud providers, because they're under so much scrutiny, devote a far greater percentage of resources to protecting the assets, protecting the data. And therefore, as long as it's not a mission-critical system that's controlling things in real time, there's probably a good candidate for moving to the cloud. And I suspect, actually, the data in those systems in the cloud will, in many cases, be more secure than if it remained on-premise in the customer data center. Yeah, it's no doubt that I mean the, the, the concerns about data were, I think, one of the one of the biggest obstacles to to uh, cloud adoption maybe a few years ago. But it's it's pretty clear that when if you've got an army of uh, you know hundreds or thousands of people focused on security full time at a uh, at Azure, for instance, uh, you're you're probably going to be in a little better better shape than trying to keep up with the <laughs> challenges on your own. So. Um, ABB uh, plays in many, many different sectors and, and has customers across a lot of industries. And I'd, I'd love to get your take more on the on the uh, on the on the transformation of, bu- of businesses and 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 talk a bit about some some industries that are that are seeing some some real successes in your in your view. I mean, who's uh, are there are there some industries or, or companies that are that are doing it right that have uh, you know that, that that stand out to you with with uh, with unique approaches or, or unconventional ideas? Yeah, so I think across, if we look across the different industry segments, uh, within each segment, there's usually some pioneers that are blazing a trail. And if you think about one of the sectors that uh, quite often doesn't necessarily get associated with innovation because it's highly regulated, which is the utility space, in Europe in particular, because the utility space is being highly deregulated, you're seeing companies like in, in the Nordics, Vattenfall, uh, which is not only saying, hi, I'm here to distribute electricity, but I want to get involved on the other side of the meter. I want to be involved in things like electric vehicle charging, smart buildings, smart cities in general. I want to deliver on customers' uh, aspirations for greener power. But I also want to throttle the demand or the spikiness of demand for power because as we move to a world where we want to have more and more renewable energy in the mix, we also have to recognize that uh, dealing with volatile demand for power is, needs to be balanced against the volatile supply because renewables are also called intermittent for a reason, which is when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow, um, you're a bit challenged to produce power. So you need to connect the behind-the-meter demand for power with the other side of the meter of generation of power. And Vattenfall, I think, is an example of a company that's doing that uh, in a very interesting way. We also see, for example, in the Nordics, a company called Northvolt, which is uh, establishing the greenest and cleanest battery factory because catering to, of course, the growth of electric vehicles, we're going to need many, many more batteries. And they're taking a very holistic approach to how the batteries get created from the most sustainable sources, but also looking at the entire life cycle of the battery. And one of the key enablers to do that is to remain digitally connected throughout, not only the process of building those batteries, but also battery management systems, the electronics that go with the battery as it gets put in the battery pack and then eventually in the car. And then after some number of years, it'll have a second life outside the car as part of maybe a utility-scale battery to help uh, deal with peak demand for power. So they're taking a very holistic end-to-end life cycle approach 
through this whole business of making batteries, which I think is very innovative as well. In terms of one of our other sectors, the mining sector, uh, the uh, good example of a company, and again, in the Nordic, I just realized that uh, Bolivia, which is also in Sweden, it's one of the oldest zinc mines in the world. And because it's been around for so long, they've been getting towards the point of diminishing returns where all the good ore has been extracted. Now they're down to just uh, whatever they can still get out of the mine, which is typically a much lower yielding quality of ore. So they've been trying to figure out how can we cut costs because we operate in a very high-cost part of the world. And what they've done is, through using smart digital technologies, they recognized one of the big sources of expense was essentially ventilating and heating uh, the mine. So you pump air into the mine and you heat that air because the workers, of course, need to work there. But by putting smart tags on all the workers, they know where they are, they can now do selective ventilation, they don't have to ventilate parts of the mine where nobody is present. They've been able to cut their energy consumption doing that and a few other things by almost 50%. So what used to be a mine that was barely profitable was actually one of the most productive mines in the world at the moment. So they're blazing a trail on how they're looking at a, an industry which is hundreds of years old and applying digital technology. And there's, in fact, conversations underway with other mining companies to essentially transition to an all-electric, all-autonomous mine. Uh, where every vehicle in the mine would be electric and all of the systems in the mine would also be electric, which means less need for ventilation of diesel fumes and things like that. And then we're also seeing that in the shipping industry where there's a movement towards experimenting with autonomous ships, which is a bit easier to do than autonomous cars, <laughs> no pedestrians at the time. So, um, but the idea that you could make the same sort of LIDAR sensor equipped to vessel can now navigate, and one of the first autonomous vessels will be setting sail in 2019 uh, in Norway. So I just realized, of course, I've rattled off all these examples being in the Nordic, but I guess there's a reason for that. It's a, it's a, actually a very fast-paced, innovative part of the world. And one of my uh, more interesting quotes that I came across was from the industry minister in Sweden, who, when he was asked if he was afraid of technology, he said, you know, I'm not afraid of new technology. I'm only afraid of old technology, which is another way of saying that if countries and industries continue to innovate with technology, that's the best guarantee against obsolescence or competition. So that's a view I very much subscribe to. It's, uh, it's nice to hear people thinking that way. I mean, I, uh, or one of the, you know, one of the topics that's, that's really very close to, uh, close to home here that you, that you touched on is this, um, this, this, uh, the, the revolutionary, the revolution in, in, uh, clean energy or inter- intermittent energy. But this, uh, the, the, the challenges ahead though are, are managing the, uh, really the upgrade of, of, of grids to be uh, not not so much hub and spoke, but are distributed and mm-hmm. uh, energy. Of course, uh, incorporating energy storage dynamically into the into the mix, and yeah, really creating an internet of energy. I'd love to get your uh, kind of your your vision on on you know what uh, what's ahead of us and some of the opportunities and and challenges that uh, that 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 you're dealing with when you are uh, when you're working with some of your clients. So I think that we have this interesting challenge-slash-opportunity. If we think about where we are today, in some ways, we've never had it so good. Life expectancy is doubled over the last 160 years. Um, Very few people die of acute diseases, infections, and things like that. So while, um, on the one hand, our society as a whole has progressed and people live better lives and they, they they are less subject to, uh, to challenges. We've done so by creating over the past 150 years or so a way of running a modern economy that is probably not sustainable. And when we think about that in terms of, I call these the, the industrial operating system. So it's a bit like the way we create energy, the way we transport people, the way we move water and purify water, the way we uh, deal with things like food. All of those systems are designed for scale. So what we've done is, again, if you go back to 150 years ago, Ed, most people lived very locally. You lived on a farm, most typically. 90% of people in this country lived on a farm back then. 
you grew your own food, you got the water out of the well that was sitting on the farm, you treated your waste locally, you chopped down local trees to generate fuel. So your entire existence revolved around a couple of miles from your house. And it was nasty, brutish, and short, but it was very local and in some ways very resilient because what happened locally happened locally. Today, our food comes from far away. We get blueberries from Chile. We get oil from the Middle East. We, get, uh, we, we fly people long distances. There's a tremendous extension or globalization of all these, of all these supply chains. Now, in order to get scale and efficiency in the industrial world, we went for size. We made big power plants. We got big factories, big farms. And what's exciting to me is that the digital revolution is you can actually imagine a different outcome, which will be much more efficient, much more resilient, much more friendly to the environment. So we're seeing that in the energy revolution, as you alluded to. The grid is going from this highly centralized, centrally managed kind of entity to, we're talking about microgrids, we're talking about interconnecting local sources of power generation. It could be renewable, it could be solar, wind, geothermal, hydro. But the complexity of moving to lots and lots of small things working together is we need to orchestrate. All these things need to play the same, off the same sheet of music. They have to be in sync. And before digital technologies arrived, it was almost impossible to do. You couldn't orchestrate anything. Whereas, connectivity, compute, software, cloud, is letting us take the many and make them look like one. So a good example of that is as we talk about how do we create a stable electricity grid if we put more and more renewables onto it? Well, at some point, we're going to have to have massive energy storage on the grid. To do that, you either build huge batteries or you tap into electric vehicles, which for many of them, they'll be spending a lot of their time connected to the grid downloading energy, but if they could also upload energy when required, so now this vehicle-to-grid use case, if orchestrated at scale, could actually create a very stable, operating, and efficient green grid. How about doing the same for, how about, for example, things like uh, transportation? If we electrify all forms of transportation, how do we get that working together? If we do the same thing for food, shortly we're going to have a planet of 9 billion people to feed. We don't have enough arable land to continue with the industrial farming method that we have today. The solution is to grow food not only in two dimensions, but three, meaning we put food into large urban warehouses, LED lighting, hydroponics, use 90% less water, naturally organic, grow the food close to where the people live, which by then will be majority in the cities, so we can actually have better food, better food for you, closer, less waste, grown more, efficient, more efficiently and effectively. We need to do the same for water. We need to do the same for all these other systems. They're going to go modular. They're going to go local. But they'll be orchestrated through a digital nervous system. And that, I think, is the challenge. We have to take our industry 1.0 operating system and evolve it into more digital operating systems mm. that are more distributed, more modular, more intelligent. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's intriguing as well that uh, you you know you're you've tied together all of these really all of these different domains and and I think you know there's been a lot of focus on uh, autonomous cars and and uh, and electrification but uh, I was I was intrigued also by your comments about uh, your your customers and who were creating these autonomous mines and and autonomous ships. Mm-hmm. Um, how uh, how are the challenges involved with I would say well, un- industrial scale tran- uh, electrification of transportation or, or uh, autonomy? Um, you know how do those challenges uh, d- differ from uh, electrifying you know, traditional automobiles and buses? And, and you know what maybe what are some uh, you know, what are some similarities as well? Well, so I think if we think about the similarities first. Uh, Clearly, all forms of autonomous systems, whether they be ships or buses or trucks in a mine or something else, have some form of sensing capability, which quite often is working on the same sensing technologies than some of the autonomous cars. So typically looking at multiple cameras, sonar, LIDAR, and then sensor fusion. How do you take the information coming from all these variety of sensors and combine it? 
the key thing about trying to do autonomy in, say, robots, autonomous guided vehicles is a good example. These are the robots that work in warehouses, putting stuff on shelves, things like this, is that the environment is more controlled. I.e., in a warehouse, you don't have to deal with the unpredictable. The, the moose is not going to come out of nowhere and cross the road, for example. So it's clear that the controlled environment of warehouses and mines are a great place to start, and that's what, that's why we're seeing some, some early adoption there. The marine example is another one, and I think what we're going to see is not necessarily a binary switch. It's not going to be like, here's a ship full of people, now we're going to go to a ship with no people. I think what we're going to see more and more is the movement towards teleoperation, i.e. the notion that some of the people will actually not be on board. They will be on shore somewhere else, remote, able to intervene at a moment's notice. In fact, that's something which we see already with robots. So the autonomous robots that are starting to show up in warehouses typically have to incorporate a capability for remote control, meaning somebody who can beam in, look at the cameras, look at the sensor information, and get the robot unstuck because maybe somebody put a cardboard box behind it and it can't move. Um, could be the same for autonomous cars. We're starting to see the law in California, for example, recently having been changed so that you don't longer need to be sitting at the wheel of an autonomous car if you can demonstrate that somebody can beam in remotely. And that, in fact, is probably a fantastic use case for some of this 5G cellular connectivity that's coming out because it's optimized for high bandwidth and low latency. But I think that same teleoperation will start to exist. And the reason why that's particularly interesting to our industrial customers is that in some of our industries, our customers are struggling with a massive change in their workforce. If you think about oil and gas, the average age of an oil worker in Houston is now 55. In the next 10 years, they're going to lose half their knowledge workers. They're not going to have enough people to work on oil rigs, remote locations. They have no choice but to pursue automation of some type. So some form of remote operation either through smart systems, the based and or the ability to augment that with the ability for remote teleoperation so that somebody can beam in and assist or uh, actually, for example, beam into a drone and fly around and inspect something. But the idea is we'll bring the expertise to where the problem is, not necessarily the person. That's really uh, it's that's really exciting and 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 fascinating and it, it ties in a bit to uh, some of the other work that a- ABB does. I mean, ABB is a, a global leader in robotics. I'd love to get your your view on on how uh, a lot of the concepts you've just been uh, discussing really tie into robotics and 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 even you know the the, the vision of. Uh, robotics becoming a service it, it seems in in some mm-hmm. respects that robotics are an extension of automation but uh, but also there's uh, you know there's some distinct uh, you know di- some uh, distinct specialties and, and expertise that go into into robotics and would love to get your view on 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 the the, the role of of uh, uh, of technologies really advancing uh, the work that you guys are doing in, in robotics Sure. So first of all, I think there's a lot of hype and, and of course, a lot of fear about the robots are coming. But let's be clear, up until today, 70% of all the robots ever sold are just in one particular industry and use case, which is in automotive. And they're typically doing things like welding and lifting heavy objects. So the first task of the robots will be typically to do things that are, I call them the three Ds, dirty, dangerous, or difficult. Um, the, the idea of a robot as a general purpose replacement of a person is, is still some ways off. It's, it's increasingly likely that we're going to see robots operating more as task op- automation experts, meaning things that can do a certain task that's dirty, difficult, or dangerous, and they do that really well. What they're not good at is general purpose problem solving, inferring from context, things like this. So, for example, distributing medicine in hospitals, very good task. A lot of people get that wrong. They give the wrong medication to the patient, whereas the robots are not only more reliable, they probably do that in a, probably a safer manner as well. Uh, so you're going to see specific tasks. And today, most of the robots don't move. They're, they're fixed in place. We're going to see the arrival increasingly of what are called collaborative robots, robots, 
So we have one called Yumi, which works side by side with people. So these are designed to be inherently safe working on our assembly line. The next stage will be robots that move, automatic guided vehicles. These will be typically used in service industries or, for example, retail, warehousing, uh, maybe health uh, care as well. We're also, I think, going to see robots more and more showing up in the food and beverage industry. So think about fast food, perhaps uh, putting chocolates into boxes, making cookies. Any one of those tasks where one of the typical problems is contamination. And when food is contaminated, people get sick or worse, and that leads to expensive recalls like we've seen recently in the last couple of weeks with McDonald's, for example. So the single biggest source of contamination is people. So the more you can have the food be packaged and put together by, by robots, the better. But the food industry is actually very low in its adoption of automation. So we're still just in the early innings of, of how that's going to play out. I think the main benefit or impact of AI in robotics, it will not be to endow those robots with human-like judgment and expertise. We're not there, uh, not by a mile. However, what will be, I think, a key accelerant of adoption of robots is to endow those robots with more forgiving programmability. What I mean by that is today for a robot to do a task, it needs to be explicitly configured down to the millimeter, and that takes time. With better sensors, for example, better cameras and vision systems, you might be able to take a robot and have it learn to pick up a variety of objects much more quickly without having to be trained on every single type of object that it might be able to pick up on off an assembly line. So I think we're going to see the AI first manifest itself as making robots that are more adaptable, more flexible, that can be deployed more quickly. Then I think you're going to see AI used more increasingly to optimize a set of steps. So, for example, today we're using AI to look for patterns in data, maybe from a sensor or a machine. Tomorrow we're going to use AI to figure out how do we, how do we make this assembly line go faster? How do we find the common causes of failure? What can we do to detect those earlier? So looking for patterns, I think that's another thing that AI is good at. But I think we still have a lot of innovations left to, to find and to discover within AI itself. I think today, despite all of the excitement around machine learning and uh, deep, uh, deep machine learning, it's really just the beginning of what's possible. I think we are still a long way away from having systems that are truly becoming self-aware and intelligent. Yeah, it's it is really interesting. I mean, I think you brought up the um, uh, well. There's there's the uh, the the more of X paradox, which is the um, the it's the really the thesis that it's a, a lot more difficult for robots to do things that you know that three year old humans can do intuitively, like mm-hmm. like walking through a door and and doing basic mobility. But but then uh, and the ability to employ uh, you know the advanced machine learning tech technologies to you know to automate away a lot of drudge work and repetitive work that uh that essentially enhances human is is incredibly exciting um so I'd love to get uh, a sense of, of where you're uh, optimistic uh, uh, about kind of looking forward I mean we've got uh you 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 just um Provided a view on, on what you guys are doing with uh, with AI and machine learning, but you know, as, as you look out over the next decade, I mean, how uh, you know what are, what are some of the uh, key areas of change that uh, that make you most optimistic? And and on, conversely, are you know what are, what are some of your greatest concerns as as these technologies, uh, the advanced technologies, get increasingly um, embedded into and into industry and and start tr- transforming? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the the, the optimist in me says that we're seeing tremendous progress in solving some of the basic building blocks: connectivity, compute tools with which to make sense of this information, the rate at which we can stand up and deploy these applications in the cloud, the way we can scale these applications is just phenomenal. So I think we have incredibly good tools that are starting to allow us to solve or address some of these challenges and problems. So I think that's that's uh, that's been incredible to see. I guess in the area of concerns, I'm concerned about probably two things. One is that 
as we start building ever more capable machines and devices, and they're smarter, they're more sophisticated, they have more sensors, more computing capabilities, we, of course, need people, and we need the people to be able to cope with those devices, meaning who's going to install, configure, maintain. And this means that a basic quality of education won't be sufficient. These are incredibly complex machines. So the workforce of tomorrow needs to be better skilled. This traditional divide between the blue-collar and the white-collar worker, uh, where we assume that we can just train the blue-collar worker for all the things we need, they need a level of numeracy and literacy and technical acumen that is not typically available if you only have, uh, if you dropped out of high school or if you just finished with a high school diploma, that may not be enough. So a skills gap. The other one that is maybe more regulatory slash political is that I'm concerned about what I would call the potential balkanization of the IT environment. So the, the requirement increasingly by countries to say, if you want to deliver a service in my country, you must put your data center storage and all these things in my country. If you want to connect to a device, then you must use a security technology that is approved by my security services. And so given that all of these operate at a, at, at a local level, it makes it increasingly complex if you want to deliver something globally because now you have many, many local requirements. So as we talk about the benefits of having access to cloud technologies and all the rest, if those technologies and building blocks are now fragmented because in every country we need to find a different source of these tools, it'll, it'll hold us back. It'll slow us down. And I think it also will deliver a worse experience for customers because we'll have to go for the lowest common denominator in whatever we can find that's common. Yeah, there's there well there's there's no doubt about uh the challenges of balkanization. I mean, we can just we can see just the impact in the past few months of what GDPR is, has uh mm -hmm. <laughs> the, 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 uh has wreaked upon uh people. And of course, security is 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 going to continue to be a a challenge across across IT. Um, <laughs> um but just just one one more question which is uh about the organizational challenges uh, that, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, we've, we've talked about technologies, but, you know, in your experience, you know, what, uh, when, when you're dealing with organizations that are, uh, that are, that, that are, have their feet firmly planted in the ground and in, in uh, physical processes, whether it be manufacturing or mining, um, and they're looking to transform themselves digitally, uh, what are some of the uh, elements of success that you've seen that, that really, uh, that really stand out? Uh, when there may be a, a, a culture gap that, that needs to be bridged? Yeah, so I think the way to approach it is always to start with the frustrations and aspirations. What are the pain points and what are their hopes? And I think rather than saying this is technology for technology's sake, let's talk about some of the challenges that these different industries are facing. So if we take the utility industry, the implementation of renewables means that there's far more decentralization. The advent of more cyber attacks means they have to secure their infrastructure better. Uh, the impact of more and more uh, being done behind the meter by customers themselves, meaning they're setting up their own batteries or they're setting up their own microgrids behind, behind the meter. If you And then the other one being generational, you can talk about their workforce and how they're going to scale to their infrastructure to tomorrow. You talk about how they make a business case for justifying the necessary investments. So I think that's always a good starting point, is to, to recognize the, the frustrations and the aspirations of your customer. Then we can map that to potential solutions or use cases. We can describe various parts of the portfolio and say, this is the answer to this problem, or this could solve you or help you with this problem. And then, only then, do we talk about what part of that solution is enabled by digital technology. But that becomes then sort of a red thread or a a common ingredient that often links these different things. So I think approaching it in that manner means that technology is not seen as a threat, but is part of the solution to their challenge. And the, mm -hmm. the best thing we can do, I think, is to understand these frustrations and aspirations of our customers. And then you need to come in at a strategic level. What I mean by that is that these change efforts, whether they're happening within our company or whether they're happening within our customers, the most effective agent of change, of course, is if your senior leadership is fully behind this change. 
if your CEO or chief operating officer and chief digital officers are all recognizing that this is an important imperative, a lot more is going to happen than if it's the head of procurement who is merely trying to procure something at a lowest possible price. So there's a difference, right? Does it come top down as a strategic imperative or is it bottom up, in which case we've got to figure out how we connect to somebody higher up who cares about this deeply and who can get us over any potential speed bumps or uh, blocks that may arise as we're having these conversations. Great. Well, this has been uh, really, really fascinating, Guido. Uh, really enjoying the um, your insights and, and experience. And I always like to ask one final uh, one final question, which is any any books or resources that you might uh, might recommend for our for our listeners that uh, that that you think highly of. Yes, actually, Ed, I think it's actually uh, one of your former uh, podcasts participants, uh, Tony Siba. Oh. I have many copies of his book on my shelf, actually, and one of the ones that I meant required reading for all of my new employees is called um, Clean Disruption, in part because in that book he describes how the impact of digital technologies will transform energy, transportation, and a number of these industries, and I think Tony does a fantastic job of extrapolating the impact of exponential change, and I think that is the part that is often difficult to see because in the short term, it looks like change is very gradual, but in the long term, change it can be incredible. And we've seen that in the digital area, and now that we're applying digital to the physical, there are some incredible changes that are coming, and I think uh, Tony does a fantastic job in creating the logical narrative behind that, showing that with data and facts. Um, it's one of those fantastic books that is so accessible that pretty much anyone can read it. <laughs> wow. Well, I, uh, I I I second and third that he's uh, we're we're big fans of his over here. So um, that's a and that's a great recommendation and, and validation from from you as well. So uh, anyway, uh, we're just wrapping things up. This is uh, Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta, with another Edge podcast. And uh, our guest today has been Guido Jurey, Chief Digital Officer of ABB. And and Guido, thanks again for joining us. Welcome, man. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.